Good to see you today. Good to be seen. Good to be above ground. Amen. Although to be with the Lord would be better. Amen. To live as Christ, to die as gain. But while we're here, we got work to do. So introduction and brief review. If you've been with us, you know this is our pattern. We're continuing in our series in Acts. Paul has been trying to get to Rome. And it seems like forever. Uh, Perhaps some of us are actually getting tired of hearing about it. It's been that long. Paul has a specific promise. He has a prophetic word from the Lord that he's going to Rome. He is going to Rome, safe and sound. He's going to arrive there safe and sound. Further ministry awaits him there. He also has the word from the governor. Governor Festus said, Paul, you appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you will go. And, of course, Caesar's in Rome. Paul's going to Rome. That part is settled. What isn't settled is when. And God has given you promises, and God has given you prophetic words, and that is settled because God said it. What isn't settled is the when and the how of it. Is that right? That can be the nerve-wracking part. Just when Paul was packed and ready to go this time, surely it's going to happen. Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Bernice show up at the palace. Further delay. Festus decides he needs to explain Paul's case to King Agrippa, who then wants to hear Paul himself before they send him to Rome. And there's going to be several days before that happens, maybe longer. That's where we ended last week. That's where we'll pick up today. So if my reader will come, it's a lengthy passage. It's Acts chapter 25, 23 through 26, 11. If you'll stand with me, Deb's going to read for us. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charge against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. 
They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest set of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Thanks, Deb. You may be seated. So the title, as you heard from Deb in her reading, is The Saga Continues. This thing is still going on. And that was a very lengthy passage. Thanks again, Deb. But there really wasn't any ready place to break off. We had to go through that, that whole passage. We probably could have taken even more material. But for time's sake and for information's sake, we stopped there. Now, as has been our practice, these recent chapters in Acts, where they lend themselves very nicely to exegesis. We break down the narrative, we give some commentary on it, and then we hopefully make relevant application. And as has been the last at least three times that I spoke, oh, by the way, Josh, thank you so much. I heard so much positive feedback. Thank you for filling in last week for me. So two weeks before that I spoke, and now today, the application are going to be themed. All three of them are the same theme. And in the application, God wants to address a very great lack in the church, not just our church, the church. God wants to address a great lack in the church that needs to be addressed, needs to be taken care of. If the church wants to be the church, God needs it to be in these days ahead. Today's closing, today's application follows a format, and it's going to follow a theme similar to the last two times that I spoke. Then Josh spoke last week, now me again. You'll see what I mean when we get to the end. So, exegeting the the passage. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers, prominent men of the city. Then Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Great pomp. I want you to get a a feel. We really need to enter into the feel of what Paul was facing. When great pomp, think of pageantry, think of ceremony, think of trumpets and colors and flags and, and banners waving and military accompaniment decked out in full uniform, flaunting their position and their title. Picture this scenario that Paul's being brought into. High-ranking city officials, high-ranking government officials, all gathered in wherever they were gathered. The scene was probably on the level of an American president giving a State of the Union address. All that pomp and circumstance that, that is present there. 
All the dignitaries are out in full force. That's the scenario that Paul was brought into. Now listen, this is very, very important. You need to picture it. You need to put yourself in that situation, into the arena in which Paul was brought. All that pomp and circumstance. And Paul was not a great man of stature to begin with, and he's been in prison, although it's a white-collar prison. He's brought in in chains and prison garb and placed in the middle of that scenario. I want you to put yourself in Paul's position. Picture it and question. As you put yourself in Paul's position in his shoes, if you were Paul and you can respond to this, give me a word or a phrase of how you might feel entering into that arena. Just go ahead and shout it out. Any word or phrase of how you might feel being taken into that arena. Embarrassed. Embarrassed, Small. Intimidated. Terrified. Fearful. Excited. Targeted. Yeah, I'd say targeted. Nervous. My word was intimidated. Whoever said that, was that you, Deb? Great minds think alike. We've been together for 46 years. We're starting to know each other's thinking. Although she never ceases to surprise me and come up with the unexpected. But yeah, my word, along with everything you said, was intimidating. Intimidated. Lord, couldn't I just have a, like a, a personal audience with Agrippa and Bernice? You know, maybe just talk to them in private. Nope, because, yet again, the Lord is asking Paul to proclaim his name before kingly, high-level audiences. This is possibly the highest level yet that he's been put into. Keep that word intimidated in mind as we move on. It's very important for the application. Intimidated, intimidating, fearful, nervous, worried, anxious, a bunch of those that came out. Continuing on with the passage. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here. So this is Festus the governor addressing the king. King Agrippa and all who are here. This is the man. Talk about victimized, pointed out, targeted. This is the man in front of that whole arena. Now all eyes, if they weren't before, guess where they are? They're on Paul. This is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews. But in my opinion, this is the governor, he's done nothing to deserve death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided to send him to Rome. It says, all who are here, well, Festus announced it to everybody and their brother. Now, no chance of a private meeting. Everyone knows you're going to have to go with it now, Paul. There's no turning back. You ever been in those positions where you're like, oh, man, there's no turning back. I'm here, and i got to go forward. There's no turning back. How would I get here? So Festus said, I have decided to send him to Rome. There's a little breath of fresh air in this whole thing. Festus is assuring Paul again he's going to Rome. That's another confirmation from God. You're going to get to Rome. This is just another minor setback. Some of those things that have come into your lives that are keeping the promise and the prophetic word from, from being fulfilled. 
They're just minor setbacks. Because if God said it, he's going to do it. They're just minor setbacks. Some of them seem pretty traumatic. Some of them seem pretty big. But in God's eyes, they're just minor setbacks in your road to the fulfillment of your promise, the fulfillment of your prophetic word from him. The next slide reveals why Festus kept Paul there and wanted to talk to Agrippa. This is Festus still speaking to Agrippa. But what shall I write to the emperor? There's no clear charge against this man. So I've brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. Let's, let's lay this out. What's going on? What shall I write the emperor? See, it would not be good for Festus, who was a lowly governor in kind of a... Uh, the, that, that province that he and Agrippa were in was not highly looked upon by Rome. It would not be good for Festus to bother the emperor with a trivial matter from Palestine. Unless he could at least show some sort of due cause for sending him to Caesar. The emperor had more weightier matters to deal with, you know, running the Roman Empire and all that, than to deal with this lowly prisoner and has something to do with the Jewish religion. Give me a break. What do I even write to the emperor and not look completely foolish? Paul was a thorn in these guys' flesh. Paul was a thorn in, in their side. They did not know what to do with him. The Jews were adamant. They wanted Paul dead. But neither Lysias, who was the commander way back, we read about him. He was the commander of the army that first rescued Paul. Neither Lysias nor Felix or Festus, they were the governors, succeeding governors, None of them could find just cause to execute Paul. They just couldn't kill him. Why do you think that was? <laughs> God was keeping him alive. They just didn't know what to do with this guy. They're trying to get rid of him, but it's, it's like sticky paper. It won't, it won't go away. Paul would much rather go away to Rome, but he can't, he can't get away from them. Each one of them just wanted Paul out of their hair. But they couldn't get rid of him. They couldn't get rid of him because God wanted them, Lysias, Festus, Felix, Agrippa, Bernice, all these high-ranking worldly officials, secular rulers. God wanted them to have opportunity to hear about Jesus. That's why they couldn't get rid of Paul. They needed to hear the gospel they had to have an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. Once there was ample opportunity given, whether they accepted or not, then Paul was off to Rome. God's amazing, isn't he? Why are you still in those circumstances that you're in? You've wanted out of them for so long. Because God has you in there and he has a purpose for you in those circumstances. You guys want out of here, I'm guessing, and back to life. But God, whether you know it or not, has you here for a purpose. It will benefit you to seek him to see what that purpose is. The sooner you find it out, the sooner you accomplish it, the sooner you're out of here. On to his next ministry assignment. Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul started his defense. Paul, chained in prison garb, 
a lowly man to begin with, in this arena of all high-ranking officials, he begins his defense. He's his own lawyer. And he starts by appreciating King Agrippa. It was not flattery. Let me, let me read the passage. You may speak in your defense. So Paul started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense. If you've been arrested and you know you're going to have a court case, you're looking to see which judge you want to get. Well, Paul was glad that King Agrippa was the guy. And there's a reason. I'm glad you're the one hearing my defense, for I know you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. So he begins his defense. This was not flattery. This was sincere. As we said before, history has depicted Agrippa as an expert in Jewish affairs and a very fair ruler. King Agrippa was very familiar with all things Jewish. King Agrippa could at least understand what Paul was talking about and what his situation was, where the Roman guys could not. They had no clue. Paul was truly thankful, not flattering Agrippa, truly thankful that this is the one he's being brought before. The Jewish leaders are well aware I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood. He's in his defense now. If they would admit it, they know I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion, and now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise, which he made to our ancestors. They accuse me of having this hope, when in reality they should have the same hope. Here's evil 101. Evil always accuses you of what it's guilty of itself. When somebody's accusing you of something, somewhere, whether it's hidden or not, they're guilty of the same thing. And I find when I become critical of someone or I become judgmental of how they think or what they did, God wastes no time in showing me you did that very thing. You thought that very way. Ouch. Sorry for being critical. Paul begins his defense by detailing who he once was. Paul had been raised in a strictly Orthodox Jewish household. He became a Pharisee, meaning he was zealous for God, for the law, for the prophets, for the scriptures. And not only was he zealous, he became a zealot, a radical, a terrorist, a religious terrorist for the Jewish way. And what he's trying to say is, listen, I still hold all those things the law, the prophets, the scriptures, in high esteem. And his accusers know it, but they won't admit it. Paul is basically saying, Agrippa, you know. You are a reasonable man. You're familiar with all of this. Isn't their accusation unreasonable? See, the only thing that Paul has done, and this is good for us to know, if you're thinking about coming, becoming Jewish, you want to hear this. The only thing that Paul has done, the only thing that he has changed in his life, and he's now trying to show them, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, the scriptures are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. He's not throwing them out. Jesus said, don't do that. I haven't come to abolish the law, the prophets, and the scriptures. I've come to fulfill them. And Paul's trying to tell his Jewish Colleagues, 
This stuff is all still valid, but it's been fulfilled in Jesus. There's a new way. It's a new and living way in which we now approach God. They are great for our life and our society, but they won't get us into the presence of God. That comes through Jesus Christ. Preach it. I'm trying. Jesus Christ is now the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one. He's the long-awaited one. He's the very one they've been waiting for, and they're rejecting him. He's the one of whom the law, the prophets, and the scriptures spoke about, and they're rejecting him. Check this out. This is Jesus speaking. Then Jesus said, when I was with you, when I was with you in a physical body before I ascended to heaven, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Hmm, interesting, right? Next slide. Jesus again speaking. The Father has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen his face or seen him face to face. You do not have his message in your heart because you do not believe me, meaning Jesus. The one that he sent to you, meaning Jesus. You search the scriptures, and that's good. You search the scriptures because you think they will give you eternal life. The law, the prophets, the scriptures, the Psalms, the writings, the history. But scripture, as good as it is, points to something better. Scripture points to me. The purpose of reading scripture is to get to Jesus. Understand. The Jews refused that. They rejected him and they refused that. And they rejected him because he was a threat to their religious political system. That's a deep subject, Maria. Wow. Exposure. Here's the problem in a nutshell. The Jews, for various reasons, do not want to believe in, accept, acknowledge, or receive Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. They reject him, and it is a knowing, willful rejection. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, Paul also at first willfully rejected Jesus. Paul had zero tolerance for Christians. Paul had zero tolerance for followers of Jesus. He continues his defense. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. I was authorized by the leading priest, the ones who are now accusing me, by the way. I was authorized by the leading priest. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. Paul did everything he could, including torture, killing men, women, and children, to get them to renounce faith in Christ. This is the Paul that we're talking about that we've been studying. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down into foreign cities to get them. They couldn't escape the wrath of the Apostle Paul, who was not the Apostle Paul then. His name was Saul. Paul was a radical religious terrorist, zealot, 
He was against Christ, and he was against Christ's followers. And he's beginning his defense before King Agrippa and this whole crowd with a rehearsal of who he once was. Brilliant. This is brilliant. He's identifying with them. They have to hear this, the Jews at least that are there who are accusing him. Paul is intentionally preparing this audience for his testimony of how this dead man, Jesus, remember they called him this dead man. Paul's preparing his testimony for how this dead man, Jesus, actually changed his life and made him who he is now, from Saul the terrorist to Paul the apostle. That's for next week. Now we're on to the application. What word did I tell you to remember for the application? Intimidation. Intimidated. Paul could have been so greatly intimidated by the scene before him that he would have been basically unable to speak. And he could have been intimidated by many situations that we have seen him encounter. But for some reason, are you with me? We're done exegeting. We're done with the historical facts. We're making application. For some reason... Paul never seemed intimidated. Paul was never intimidated, fearful, worried, or anxious. He battled, especially at that one point from Athens to Corinth, but he always was, he was was never intimidated. Remember a few chapters ago, the time he wanted to rush into the amphitheater when it was filled with people who wanted to kill him? He wanted to go in and address them. He was not intimidated. It was his friends, some believers, and some city officials who who were friends with Paul stopped him from going in there or we wouldn't have the rest of the story. He was rushing into it when everybody else was running away from it. Question for us to ponder. Does Scripture give us any help in this matter? Does Scripture give us... Does Scripture have a word for us when we face intimidation or when we face things that tempt us to be intimidated, to be fearful, to be discouraged, to want to give it up? Thank you. Yes, it does. It was a rhetorical question, but thank you, Brandon. The Bible speaks many times of another word that I want you to remember. It's the word confidence. Confidence. Confidence, and it's greatly lacking in the church. Evil comes in like a flood, and we're so intimidated. And yet the Bible speaks over and over again of confidence. Confidence for God's people. We of all people should have confidence and not be intimidated. So sit back and let the word of God speak to you on this matter of believer confidence. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, a go-to verse in times of stress and intimidation. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and their confidence. 
He did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. Let us live in the light. Let, let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of salvation. What's the difference between clear-headed and confidence? When you're intimidated and you're fearful and you're worried and you're anxious, discouraged, depressed, whatever, you don't think clearly. You think clearly when you're confident. And I love being around confident people. I don't know about you, but I love being around confident people because they ooze confidence. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. We can say with great confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will have no fear. Intimidation. What can mere people do to me? I love that. Because although the demonic is, in, is behind it, he uses people. And the intimidation and fear often comes from people. Paul walked into that arena of high-ranking government officials, kings, governors, Military men, accusers. I will have no fear. I will have no in intimidation. What can mere humans do to me? I know God. I know Christ. He lives within me. I know the Holy Spirit. I know his angels surround me. Why should I fear? Now, I know it's hard to remember that in the moment, isn't it? It's easy to preach it here and feel it here, but it's true at all times. What should I fear of mere humans? What can they do to me? And it doesn't mean get cocky and arrogant. It just means become confident in what God is saying, what he's doing, what he's calling you to do. Don't back down. Amen. The purpose of intimidation is to get people to back down, stand down. Yet the picture of the church is never standing down. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. The picture of the church is moving forward and the enemy is standing down. As the church comes through, it's greatly lacking in the church. We bow down for many reasons, and oftentimes we're deceived into thinking, oh, that's probably the right thing to do, compromise this, condone that. We don't want to offend anybody. That is a bunch of, hmm, you know. You know what I'm saying. So now in Scripture, there are some words that are synonymous with confidence. Boldness, be strong, be courageous. So we're going to look at some scriptures that speak to us about that. This is my command to you. Be strong, be courageous, confident and bold. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, intimidated. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I might add in whatever you're facing... Whatever you're facing right now, sometimes it seems like he's not there, but the truth is he is there. The godly are as bold as lions. 
The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness, the confidence, the courage of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men. No special training in the scriptures. No, they weren't theologians. They were fishermen. Bold, confident, strong, courageous. And they also recognized those guys were with Jesus. So can I give you a little hint? You spend time with Jesus, you become confident. You become bold. You become strong. You become courageous. Oh, Lord, hear their threats. And there are plenty of threats going around from the evil camp these days. Oh, Lord, hear their threats. Give us, your servants, great boldness, confidence, strength, courage. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of Jesus, through the church. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook. You always got to give a minute just in case. It's on my bucket list, Lord. Okay, not today. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the word with great boldness. And last but not least, this new way of life in Christ gives us such confidence we can be very bold. The last three applications, as I said at the beginning, they have a common theme. Principles to help us as believers should we find ourselves in intimidating situations. And here's the three principles taken two weeks ago, then Josh, then now. These three principles addressing this topic. God is incredibly faithful to keep his promise. We, we need to know that. If he said it, it's settled. It's going to happen. We need to know the scriptures, the word of God, so we can stand strong. What do we have to stand on if we don't know what he's talking about? Then today, be confident. Be strong, be bold. Be confident, be courageous, be very courageous. If we truly live for Christ, this is the end, so you can hear me now. I'm done. Just about. If we truly live for Christ... And we speak truth for Christ. And we don't back down. We're going to face some tough, tough opposition, whether you like it or not. Just get on Facebook and start talking truth about Jesus. I'm not advising you to do that because it's a waste of time. But you'll find out the opposition that's out there when you do it. Just waiting to pounce, given the opportunity. When you truly take a stand for Christ, you will find yourself, and me, I will find myself facing intimidating people and intimidating situations. It has moved from just some, some uh, never really mild, but not too vehement opposition to Christianity, argument, debate. It has moved now to where it's unreasonable and it's irrational and nothing short of the Holy Spirit's power is going to touch it. Your and my reasoning with them will not work. It is written. It is written is our go-to. It is written. They can't argue with that. They can choose not to believe it, but they can't argue with it because it is written. 
So these are scriptural principles to help us get through and to not just survive. Some of us think, hey, if I can just survive till either I die or Christ comes back, please stop thinking like that. That has hurt the church. Start thinking in terms of more than conquerors, right? In all these things, more than conquerors. They need to back down, not to me, Hub Smith. They need to back down to Christ in me and the power of the Holy Spirit and the angels that are fighting for me. They need to back down to that. All right, we stand with me. Justin's going to come. He'll pray. Sonny, whatever you've chosen to close with here, bring the band forward. Where we get settled, Justin, and then lead us in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, your amazing word and the amazing account that we heard about Paul and how, how everything was set up just so. Thank you for today's word, Lord, and I just thank you that for the truth that um, if you're with us, nothing can stand against us. And we know that we, we absolutely, desperately need you because yep. we can't do anything without you. Right. That's right. We're, we're not just glad you're with us. We desperately <laughs> need you, yep. Lord. And Father, I just, I just thank you that we don't need to have confidence in ourselves because we can have confidence in you and you are in us. So then we can have that confidence. Thank you, Lord. And help us because we slip into letting our circumstance determine how we're going to operate, letting it hinder us, and letting it chop away at our confidence and our boldness. So, Lord, help us to realize and know that truth that we can rise ab above the circumstance and have confidence, Lord. We're, we're under attack. We're, we're seeing the enemy working around our town. We're, we're realizing that He's always working and, and trying, to, trying to push back the kingdom. And Lord, you've chosen us to be the ones to stand there and not let that happen. Father, I just want to pray for the, just thinking about the girl that, that Deb was talking about, a young, a young woman, the, the girl that, that was murdered here in Columbia, the children. The children of our town, the children of our area, the children of our nation and our world are under attack. So, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, help us to have the strength, have the boldness to carry out what it is you need us to carry out, to push the enemy back. And to protect these children who are going to continue to further your kingdom. And Lord, I pray for this congregation, Lord. Keep us all safe. I pray that you would heal where healing is needed. And you know all that. You know everything about us. You know every square inch of our body, every cell. I thank you for this congregation and this family, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.